0: Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Today on Words of Grace, we're going to begin a new series on the roles of the three-in-one God in salvation. That is to say, the role of God the Father in our salvation, and the role of God the Son in our salvation, the role of God the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, in our salvation, our deliverance from sin. This is something that I like to do here on Words of Grace from time to time, because these truths, as you'll see plainly from the Word of God, are not as emphasized in today's time as they have been in Christian history, and it's just a good thing for us to study. Perhaps you believe this, but you're shaky on it, so you need to have these ideas firmed up in your mind, or perhaps you've never heard of this and you're a part of our radio listening audience, and to hear this for the first time, well, it would be beneficial for you. We've done series like this in the past, and you can find those on our church website if they're within the last few years, and it's, again, something that I like to do at least once every year or two. As we introduce this series to you, suffice it to say, the three in one God, each person of the three in one God, has and plays a role in our salvation, our deliverance from sin in an eternal sense, our eternal salvation from sin. Probably the best place to go to list these all for you, one at a time, would be in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. In Romans eight twenty eight, we read that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Those that love God and those who are called according to His purpose are further elaborated on in verses 29 and 30. But just emphasize that point for a moment, called according to His purpose. As we get into the specifics of salvation, we'll see that this is something that very much is according to God's purpose. So, elaborating on those that love God and those who are called according to His purpose, Paul writes, "...for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, his Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called." and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, I love to emphasize the verse following these passages that talk about God and salvation and foreknowing, predestinating, calling, justifying, and glorifying. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And the remainder of this chapter is devoted to highlighting the fact that it doesn't matter what happens in this world, if a person has been saved by God, there is nothing that can separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus their Lord. But if you noticed in this passage, you have phases, if you will, of a person's deliverance from sin. You have foreknowing and predestinating, you have calling, you have justifying, and you have eventually glorifying. To be glorified is to be raised incorruptible, and that's something that will happen at the second coming of Christ in the last day. We'll be raised in glorified bodies, though we're sown in corruption, two words, we are raised incorruptible, one word, unable to be corrupted in the full glory of being raised in the image of Christ. Conformed to his image, as we read in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. Now, I want to preface our message today in particular with a couple of thoughts. Number one, this demands Trinitarianism for each of the three persons of the Godhead to play a distinct role in our salvation. As we'll see today, God the Father is the orchestrator of salvation. He has purposed it. He has ordained it. The word that we read in Romans 8 is predestinated it. The Son of God has justified us. He died for us on the cross. He redeemed us. The Holy Spirit is said to quicken us or regenerate us, to indwell us and give us life, eternal For there to be three distinctive roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation, well, that demands Trinitarianism. And if you're a longtime listener to Words of Grace, you know that we are orthodox in that. We believe in Trinitarianism, that God exists eternally as three persons—God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the place that I go to simply express that is the book of 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. Now, if you're a seminary grad or you're a fan of modern, popular textual critics and apologists, you're not going to like that I use 1 John 5-7— Because the modern textual critic and the seminary grad, they're going to rely on the critical text. And the critical text comes from a couple of ancient manuscripts that omit this verse, but they omit a lot of other verses and they omit a lot of words. And they don't even omit at times the same words. They disagree with each other in more than 3,000 places in the four Gospels alone, the two manuscripts that most textual critics rely on, so if first john five seven doesn't appear in these two ancient manuscripts, i'm not the least bit bothered by that because those two manuscripts are very faulty, they disagree with each other in thousands of places, and so I don't rely on those. I use the received text that which we have received. And you can find quotations, citations of this passage all through church history. I'm not ashamed to use it. But First John 5, 7 says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. By the way, the word Trinity, that is an ancient Christian word, depends upon this passage and the truth of this passage. There is a triunity, a three that are one. And this is the only passage in the Word of God that says there are three that are one. The very word Trinity depends upon this passage in Scripture, and certainly this is God's Word. I have no doubt in my mind that this is God's Word. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You notice the formula for baptism. We're baptized, according to Jesus, in Matthew 28, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. At the baptism of Jesus, early in the Gospels, you have the Father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove. It's undeniable that the Word of God presents a Trinitarian view of Almighty God. And so, prefacing this series on the phases of salvation, this demands Trinitarianism. You have a role of the Father and a role of the Son and a role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Number two, we need salvation, we need saving. Because we are sinners, there's absolutely no way for us to stand uncondemned before God except God save us. And as we love to emphasize from the Old Testament, salvation is of the Lord. In the book of Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The last verse of Romans chapter 6, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So, we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot stand before God uncondemned unless we be saved. This is why we need salvation. It's why Christ had to come into the world. It's why he died upon a cross for us. We needed saving, or else we would be condemned, and we would spend our eternity after death and the resurrection in the lake of fire. But while we're sinners, and most Christians agree on that, it's actually worse than most believers realize. We're described in Ephesians chapter 2 as being dead in trespasses and in sins. Many Christians believe that we're merely sick in sin, but we're not merely sick. We're actually dead. We are dead in trespasses and in sins, and because of that, we do terrible things. By nature, we are the children of wrath, even as others According to 1 Corinthians 2.14, as natural men, we cannot understand, we cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, They are foolishness unto us, we cannot know them. And so that passage says that before the new birth, we're unable to receive the gospel. The gospel is to them that perish foolishness, according to 1 Corinthians 1. Not only are we unable to receive, we're unwilling to follow the Lord. Romans 3 says there's none that understands, there is none that seeks after God, they're all gone out of the way, they're together become unprofitable, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We are unable, we are unwilling, we are uninterested because before salvation we are dead in trespasses and in sins. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 5 and verse 40, You will not come unto me that you might have life. We will not come unto him that we might have life. And it's also why Jesus says in John six forty four that we must be drawn to him. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So let's begin looking at the specific role of God the Father in salvation. As the Father represents God's divine prerogative in Scripture, it's no surprise then that He is the sovereign orchestrator of salvation. And remember that statement, that God the Father represents God's divine prerogative. That is what God desires to do, His will, His choosing in the world— We see this reflected in the life of Jesus. Jesus says that he comes not to do his own will, but the will of the Father which has sent him. Now, to be very clear, Jesus is not eternally subordinate to his Father, but when Jesus was here in the world, he submitted himself to the Father. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered as a man, and as a human being, he was always submissive to the will of the Father. Even suffering the dread of the cross in Gethsemane, Jesus says, thy will be done, not his own will. And so Jesus is, in his personal life here as a human, in his incarnation, submissive to the will of the Father, but it is the Father's prerogative that he's obeying, the Father's will that he is obeying in his life. The Father often represents God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, his power, the things that he has ordained in the world, and the word that I have found that best describes that is prerogative, the divine prerogative of God. This word prerogative in a modern setting is defined as a right or privilege exclusive to a particular individual or class. And so the word prerogative implies more than simply saying what the Lord wills or what the Lord wants. It's a very strong word, and I like to use that word with reference to God the Father and the will of God, the sovereignty of God. And I'd like to say that that's original to me, but it's not. It's one that's used in commentaries. And I believe that it's a fitting word to think about God the Father and God's divine will. Now, regarding divine prerogative in salvation, what we might refer to as sovereign grace or the sovereignty of God in salvation, notice the book of Acts, chapter 13, and verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And so those who believe are first ordained to eternal life. Those who have salvation were ordained to it. Now, as we read of being ordained to eternal life in passages like Acts 13, 48. It is the Father that has ordained us to this eternal life. And so we're ordained to life everlasting. We are ordained to eternal life, and it is God the Father in Scripture that is said to have ordained us. And so before the foundation of the world, as we'll see in just a moment, that's the when this took place. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father has ordained people to eternal life. Now as a Baptist, it's very important to make the distinction between God ordaining those who are saved to eternal life versus simply passing over the wicked and leaving them in the state that they were found in. One theological camp among conservative evangelical Christians believes that God has equally ordained the righteous to salvation and the wicked to condemnation. But as a traditional historic Baptist, my view is that God is passive in dealing with the wicked, and God is active in dealing with his children as it relates to being ordained to eternal life. As it relates to salvation, as it relates to topics such as predestination, God doesn't predestinate people to hell. People who end up in the lake of fire end up in the lake of fire according to their works. We've noticed this in the book of Romans, chapter 9, as it relates to the vessels of wrath. God endured them with much long suffering. And so, God's dealings with them are in the sense of enduring them with much long suffering, at the same time he makes known the riches of his glory unto the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. So God's dealing with the wicked is in a passive sense. Adam placed them in sin. They are sinners because of Adam. They deserve condemnation because they being sinners have lived lives full of sin. They're judged according to their works. And God endures them with long suffering, But with the righteous, those who have been made righteous through the death of Christ, those who are saved, well, he actively prepared them unto glory. And so you see clearly in Romans 9, verses 22 and 23, that there is a difference, even in the language that Scripture uses to speak about the righteous and the wicked. God leaves the wicked where he found them. God actively takes the righteous from their wickedness and saves them from that. Or, as we read in Acts 13, God has ordained us to eternal life. Those who have eternal life are ordained to it. Now, we've already given you probably one of everyone's favorite passage who believes in this concept that God the Father has ordained us to eternal life as we read Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So obviously, this is God the Father that we're talking about, who has done the predestinating, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. Calling is done by the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a later episode, and justifying was accomplished by Christ upon the cross. But predestinating, this is something that is attributed to God the Father. Again, God the Father foreknew and predestinated people to be conformed to the image of his Son— very clearly, this means that God the Father is the one who is the predestinator, as it were. Remember, God the Father represents God's divine prerogative, his sovereign will, his choice, that which he ordains. So just briefly notice that God foreknew people and God predestinated those people. To predestinate, just look at that word for a moment. Pre means before and then destinate. That comes from the same Root as the English word destiny. So before the world began, as we'll see in just a moment, God has set the destiny of an innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue that they will be glorified after this world. What begins with foreknowing and predestinating ends with glorification. And you notice it's the same group in their entirety that moves from one phase of this salvation to another. They are foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. It doesn't say many are predestinated, but only a few are justified and even less glorified. And it doesn't say that just a few are predestinated, but many are justified, and some of them get glorified. No, the same group that is foreknown is predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. And again, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? This is a positive thing. It's not a scary thing. It's not an us for and no more thing. God has chosen an innumerable host of people to be with him in glory. Many sons will be brought unto glory that Jesus, as he said in Romans 8, would be the firstborn among many brethren. The most explicit and descriptive passage, though, of the sovereignty of God in salvation, the electing of God the Father, the predestinating of God the Father, would be Ephesians chapter 1. Now, this is a passage that makes a lot of people mad. It makes some people try to explain it away. We're going to recommend you do some things with passages like this at the close of today's broadcast. But notice Ephesians chapter 1 and how clearly this doctrine of God the Father ordaining people to eternal life is described. Just read this with an open mind and simply take the language for what it says without what abouts and what ifs and yeah, but... No, just listen to what it says and believe what it says. Paul writing here to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, By the way, writing in addition to the saints at Ephesus to the faithful in Christ Jesus, that includes every single person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes people will say as we get to the us and the we Of this passage later on, well, that that only had reference to the apostles, or maybe that only has reference to the church at Ephesus, or maybe that has reference to the Jews. But notice the audience here. Paul is writing to the saints at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So when he uses us and we in words such as that, understand that he's writing to you. If you know and love Jesus, he's writing to you. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That passage conveys very clearly, and I dare say undeniably, the work of God the Father in salvation, in electing and predestinating people unto salvation. Read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. First of all, the us there— again, Paul, the church at Ephesus, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, this us has been blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Okay, what sort of spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ has God blessed us with? Well, notice how he begins in verse 4 to tell us of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In the Next portion of this chapter, you learn about redemption through the blood of Christ. That's what we'll study as we look at the role of the Son in salvation. As you come to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, you read about the role of the Holy Spirit resurrecting us from death and sin to life in Christ. Here in this passage, we read that God the Father has chosen us in His Son, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should what? That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And so God the Father, before the world began—and I would encourage you to do a word study on that phrase, before the foundation of the world, before the world began— And just study the various references to the beginning of the world and salvation in your Bible. There's a few of them, and it's very clear that before the world began, God purposed to save people. In this passage, we read that He has chosen us in His Son before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, you might think, I don't feel very holy. Well, many times we don't act very holy, but we have to remember that the reason that we're holy in the sight of God, the reason we are without blame before Him is not because we're Pharisee super saints, scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law, people who have tricked themselves into thinking through their own ego that they don't have sin problems. We are without blame because of the blood of Christ. Christ died for us. He took our iniquity upon Himself. He gave us His righteousness. And well, because of that, we are righteous through Christ. And so we are holy and without blame before God and love through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you notice that he has chosen us in him before the world began. Before the foundation of the world, people were chosen in Christ. And God, again, this word that starts with a P, is in verse 5 of Ephesians 1. God predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Your destiny of being a child of God was set in advance. You were predestinated as a child of God before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Titus chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised when? Before the world began. By the way, Paul writes this book of Titus, in Titus 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect. And then he goes on to say that he writes in hope of eternal life, that God, which cannot lie, promised before the world began. Eternal life is promised before the world was created. Now, before we get to a couple of exhortations along the lines of this passage and our understanding of it, I want to just point out briefly how even the preaching of Christ regarding salvation reflects this, the will of his Father in sending him to save people. In John 6, 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Verse 39, this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And lastly, for today, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is speaking and praying to the Father. He says, "Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent." In those passages, John 6, John 10, John 17, it's very clear that as Jesus speaks about salvation, He does so from the perspective that the Father has ordained people to eternal life and sent His Son into the world to die for them. Now, a final statement about this before coming to our exhortation for today. You might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but God predestinates people because He knew that they would be good people, or He knew that they would believe. He saw, looking through the annals of time, that these would be people who followed him. Did you know that the Psalms say that God looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and none followed him? But Paul actually approaches this point in the book of Romans chapter 9, and he says that the children, referring to Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Paul actually says that when God elected people, he did so regardless of their works, either good or evil. And so, as you see in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Salvation is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but salvation is of God that showeth mercy. He chose to love one, and he leaves the other where he finds them. Now, this is obviously not popular. So, what should you, what should I as a Christian do? Well, I should accept what the Word of God says, even when I don't understand it, and maybe even if I struggle to agree with it, because it's the Word of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so if you struggle with this today, the first thing I want you to do is just take a breath and say, well, if the Word of God teaches something, then I need to believe it, because I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, I'm a person who professes their faith in God, and I believe that this is His Word. Number two, and I would greatly urge you to do this right this second— pray that you understand this concept, that you understand these passages, and understanding them as they are intended, well, pray that God would open your heart to believe it and accept it, because it's the Word of God, and if it's the Word of God, it's worth believing. Again, I'm Ben Winslet thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today. Inviting you to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a primitive Baptist church in your community. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.